Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 146 being recorded on Thursday, September 20th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, we're sitting here at episode 146, knocking on 150. And there's someone we've been trying to get on the show for a long time, but she is so busy it's taken almost 150 episodes for the stars and the moons and the planets to align. So we are really, really excited to finally have on the Jason and Scott show, the infamous and famous Sutrita Kodali. Welcome to the show, Sutrita. Oh, thank you, Scott. And um, I'd only been waiting for years to even be invited to the show. So this is my moment. Uh, usually in the intro, I give like a little blurb about people and I was looking at your LinkedIn and uh, there were so many things you've done. The uh, the ones I'll just throw out there, you've got tons of retailers, you've got Walt Disney, uh, and of course, uh, well known for Forrester. So, um, so yeah, welcome to the show. Excited to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Finally. Kidding. <laughs> Uh, I, I feel like the wait is going to be well worth it. Uh, as you know, from having listened to a couple of shows, we always like to start by kind of orienting the listeners with a little bit of background and sort of a, a quick synopsis of, of, uh, the scope of your role now. So, um, I know you have a fancy title, uh, principal analyst at Forrester. Uh, what does a principal analyst do? Yeah, um, well, Forrester, for, um, for, for those who don't know, is a technology research company. Um, it's uh, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, we have um, a number of analysts who focus on different aspects of, uh, of technology research. And I've um, focused for the 10 plus years that I've been at Forrester um, on the retail industry. So that means um, digital retail, omni-channel issues, mobile commerce, um, social commerce, um, anything and everything that really... Uh, um, involves um, technology or the internet. Um, and uh, I work with retailers and um, a lot of the technology um, suppliers and technology software providers that, um, that support the retail industry. Uh, very cool. And, and uh, Scott alluded to it, but you, you have a, uh, a prodigious retail background before coming to Forrester. Can you uh, share with our listeners the, the synopsis of how you got there? Yeah, yeah. There. Um, well, just before I had joined Forrester, I was at um, a department store. So I worked at Saks Fifth Avenue um, for the Saks.com team. Um, before Saks, I worked um, in big box retail. I was um, at Toys R Us for um, for a little while, and uh, and before that, I was um, at a startup during the first dot-com boom of the late 90s. Um, and it was uh, it was a, a startup that was in the e-commerce space selling baby products. Um, it was actually called Baby Style. Um, and uh, that was actually founded by um, a colleague who had worked at Disney um, when I was when I was there. So um, so that is that range of, uh, of experiences. It's uh, brands, internet startups, um, department stores, and big box. Awesome. 
And uh, the you, Scott, and I are part of a prestigious club. We have we've all served on the shop.org board of directors. And you and I were just at shop.org in uh, Las Vegas last week. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, the shop.org is where I think I got to know both of you. So that alone is a good reason to be part of shop.org, to get to meet fabulous people um, like Scott and Sucharita. And uh, I'm curious, uh, I haven't had a chance to kind of uh, debrief with you since the show. Um, any big uh, takeaways or, or uh, uh, things, things you, you saw or heard at the show that, that, that uh, stood out to you? Yeah, you know, the, um, the the topics that seem to come up have been a lot of the topics, I think, that um, that, that have been pretty popular in 2018. Um, as, you, as you know, Jason, I know that you'd, you'd spoken on uh, like AI and machine learning, which um, retailers, uh, I, I think, are just still trying to get their arms around what does it mean for their businesses and um, is there applicability and um, is there applicability really to um, a mature business that has a large store footprint? Where, where is there um, an opportunity there? And, and how do they even, you know, think about um, leveraging it, it, you know, to their advantage? Um, to Amazon is always a perpetual topic of, uh, it's almost, you know, kind of every conversation I have with a retailer, it almost seems like it, it, it kind of goes into to that territory. Um, there was, uh, you know, also, I think, um, an interest in, in just as an extension of, of the Amazon discussion around marketplaces. Um, and, you, you know, I, th- I think these are, the, the, that will likely be one of the, the, the topics that, that we'll probably talk about today is, um, is uh, Facebook and what it's doing with its, from, with its latest commerce, commerce initiatives. Um, so I would say those are, those are definitely the, the, the themes that stood out to me that seem to be recurring um, that, that came up over and over again. Nice. I, I actually felt bad because um, Scott wasn't able to make it this year uh, due to the hurricane. We missed you, Scott. I know. It's not the same without Scott. Yeah, it's the first one I've missed in, I think, uh, I'm going to say 10-ish years. I don't know. It was very strange not going this year. But I've heard a recap, so I saved a lot of time. That was great. Nice. If you're doing the math at home, that means Scott started going to shop.org when he was a teenager. Uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, you gave a talk. There's a secret session. I'm going to give away the, the inside scoop at, at shop.org. There's a secret invite-only session called Executive Afternoon at shop.org uh, that all the fancy people attend, and that's when they get all the big brains to present. And you were one of the presenters at that section, and you actually talked a lot about marketplaces. And I was, as I was listening, I was thinking to myself, Scott Wingo is totally sad that he's missing this. <laughs> well, this is what uh, Scott's been evangelizing for for so long, right? Is is uh, how much of the world is is now marketplaces? How much of retail is now marketplaces? And uh, the Forrester stats are that globally, marketplaces are now um, fifty more than fifty percent of all of e commerce um, projected to be north of sixty percent in five years. So, um, so your call uh, has always been right, Scott Wingo. Thanks. Thank you. Uh... I need to bring you on on all my meetings so you can tell people that. <laughs> I'll just put a quote that I'll just put on my slides. Scott Wingo is always right, Sue Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that that's interesting. So uh, you know, one of the things we identified early in the channel advisor was we we started going to China and realizing you know over there it's like ninety percent marketplaces. Do, do you feel like we're heading towards that kind of a world, or do you think you feel like 
we're at kind of a balancing point in the 50 to 60% range. Where, where do you think that goes? Well, um, a, a large, you're right. I mean, it, there's a large part of e-commerce that is China. It is the largest e-commerce market in the world. Um, and when most of the e-commerce in the largest market is marketplaces, it's going to be skewed a little bit. The figures for the U.S. I think we have are like more like 30 to 40%. Oh, so that was um, a global, the 50%. Right, right, right. It was a global. So yeah, sorry I, if, if that was unclear. Um, but uh, so so where is the saturation point for um from marketplaces in the U.S. And I think that that is a question that's ultimately, um, so there are two nuances I think that are important with that question. One is how broadly we define marketplaces. Once you get into defining marketplaces with travel or potentially with food or other categories, um, it becomes, the penetration numbers change and it's actually even higher because there are certain categories that um, in, are entirely marketplaces like, or, you know, largely marketplaces like ride hailing. Um, so, so that, so I think that there's, um, there, there's a, there's a very narrow definition of e-commerce that we have now, which is about 30 categories of physical goods. Um, and within those 30 categories, the future I think is ultimately intertwined with, um, the future of Amazon and retail. And, um, I think that's the, the big, that's one of my big questions is given Amazon's first party margins, which I don't, I think are probably the lowest margins of all of its key categories that it does business in or its key businesses that it participates in, um, I think it really begs the question of, you, you know, do they, do, they conti- do they lean into their higher margin um, businesses like advertising or cloud or hardware um, and ultimately, you know, give up on, on some of the retail um, pieces and they become more of, or they become more of a service service provider. Um, and uh, in that, in, in that scenario, um, I actually think that we may see um, a cap to that marketplace to, you know, stat that, you know, maybe we won't get to 70 or 80%, like in some, you know, some of the, you know, these, these other markets like China um, or North of that. But, uh, but, but, you know, for, for, I think it's, it's it's heavily dependent on you know what sort of happens in the next five years with Amazon. Yeah, so we we've already kind of jumped into it, but it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without talking about Amazon. Um, so it was a good market marketplace uh, kind of approach. I had a thirty thousand foot question for you. I'm I we're Twitter buddies, and you know if I kind of look at the trend, you're you're kind of a little not anti Amazon, but it, I get the vibe that you're kind of feeling like you know that maybe they'll come under more scrutiny around some stuff. What What's going on there? Um, well, I think that it, there are a lot of, of people that think that. Um, I, you know, there's, there's no question that um, – there are there are certain things that that happen on Amazon. There are CEOs of companies like Birkenstock and Swatch that have called out, you know, that there are fake um, versions of their products on on Amazon. Um, so you have you know counterfeit issues. You have um, pricing issues. There, um, you, you know, there there are issues related to the authenticity of reviews. Um, you know, there are a number of products that I've bought on Amazon that'll have like five hundred positive reviews. 
reviews and then um, you know you get the product and the packaging says you, you know contact this URL for support and it's um, it's a URL for some for a non-existent website um, it, you know and it, so there there is all kinds of um, there are all kinds of issues with um, you know it's gotten Amazon has gotten so big and even though they have some of the most brilliant minds in retail working um, there there are you know there are a lot of fraudsters in the marketplace that are um, one step ahead and constantly um, you know it's it's a whack-a-mole situation for Amazon so so my so anyway my the net net of my 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 long soliloquy here is um, that the I, I think that there are um, a, a few different directions that Amazon could be tackled. It could be, um, you know, that you could have states attorney generals, um, ra- you know, kind of creating some case with the, you know, under the the, the guise of uh, consumer protection laws. Um, we have, um, you know, there was the 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 the. EU um, antitrust commissioner um, just the other day who said that, um, you know, she's looking at some of the pricing um, issues with or what the data that Amazon is collecting from marketplace sellers. um, And does that affect the pricing of, you know, first versus third party merchandise? Um, So, so there are a lot of different, um, I think constituents within um, government regulation that I think may have some some legs to stand on with respect to um, addressing these issues. I think the, these issues are just so new. I mean, I I, I can't think of of a business that's had a first and third party marketplace in you know ever, um, and you, you know kind of also has um, you know the you know kind of instant transparency of information and. Um, there, there, there are just no laws around this, um, so it's it's difficult to retrofit our existing laws on topics like predatory pricing or price fixing when you know kind of what Amazon may doing may be doing there are slight nuances to those to those issues. Yes, yeah, and HQ two, you want to share? <laughs> My Charlotte? my guess would oh Charlotte was was <laughs> out of the first round yeah. you know I think right. Raleigh Durham you know you guys have a better shot um you guys made that that finalist list right that yep the, yep we're on the short list right the short list um my 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 bets would actually be on Boston mm, okay a lot of people are saying DC because of a lobbying thing which I don't hundred percent mm-hmm. understand that that they have to hire a lot of lobbyists twenty thousand right. lobbyists um. <laughs> Uh, so Jason and I got in a vigorous debate with some people about Amazon Go. Um, they were uh, they announced they were going to open a couple more, and people were like, "This is crazy! It's stupid!" And then they announced they're going to open three thousand, or they had, didn't announce it, but there's there's leakage that they may open three thousand. What what do you think about the Amazon Go store and the strategy there? Well, I I think that um, you know when when things like this are said with anonymous sources, it it does become more questionable. That I I want to see the leases, and I'm going to wait, and uh, you know I'm not going to speculate too too early because um, I feel like we've seen this movie before. Um, you know, when Amazon took out the lease at the Empire State Building, everyone thought that that was going to transform you know grocery and retail and distribution in New York City. Um, um, you know, after they um, launched the bookstores, there was speculation that it was, you know, they were going to have, you know, 
hundreds of them throughout the country. There are, I think, 15 now. Um, you know, when they even launched with Amazon Fresh, you know, I think that there was some speculation that they were going to be in, you know, 100 plus cities and, you know, in a very short period of time. And that rollout's been a lot, a lot slower. Um, so I, I don't know that I completely believe um, the rumors. There's a part of me that that wonders, you know, is it, you know, is it somebody who's trying to short grocery stocks who's planning these rumors? You know, um, so I, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure that I fully believe it. Um, but also the, um, the logic of of opening that many stores that do require such a high capital investment, um, usually for these small format stores. Um, especially ones that are not, um, you know, selling high ticket goods. And, you know, a lot of what they're selling are these, you know, convenience store items or lunch for someone. Um, You know, you're not talking about, you know, business that is like 10 or $15 million per location. Even I'd be surprised if it was even that much. Um, So, so it's an incredibly high capital investment um, for a business that, um, Ultimately, I don't know how much of an impact it's going to have on Amazon's overall business at this point. I mean, the kinds of bets that Amazon needs to make now, now that it's like a $200 billion plus company, um, it has to be really big. And, um, and I don't even know that, you know, kind of opening a convenience store chain is going to deliver those kinds of numbers for them. Yeah, and we like we like to say it's a trillion dollar company. Just to use the bigger number, <laughs> the valuation versus revenue, right? Uh, so. Yeah, yeah. That is a very first world problem when you you get to the scale where, um, like, a business is only interesting to you if if it has the potential to be huge. And and Amazon certainly has entered that phase. Uh, side note on Amazon Go: uh, if the rumors are true and they roll out three thousand. There's an interesting question. Does that disrupt convenience stores, i.e. is that horrible news for 7-Eleven? Or is it actually worse news for like QSR, quick serve restaurants like Subway Sandwiches and those folks? Because it, it, it really seems like the in the first few stores, the the purpose people have for going to the store is to get lunch more so than to to, you know, get emergency convenience items. Right, right. Yeah, I think that that's that, you know, that's an unknown. I mean, whether it ends up being more of a grab and go restaurant, you know, semi restaurant, semi, um, you know, pick up some essentials. I mean, when I when I visited one, I mean, they had meal kits, chocolate bars, you know, wine, um, all kinds of, you know, it seemed almost like it was an experiment on, you know, what are what are things that people can can carry um, that they may consume in the next few hours. Um, so, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I don't know that 7-Eleven and like the gas station convenience stores are going to be necessarily that disrupted. The reason being that, um, you know, fundamentally it's gas or cigarettes or, you know, there's some other driver of the visit to those stores. Um, as far as, um, as, as it, Amazon goes ability to provide food, I think, um, yes, they become essentially a new uh, they essentially become like a new quick service restaurant in in the space. Um, 
you know, and it's, I, I think that that's just the natural competition in the restaurant industry. I mean, it's so hyper competitive and um, it's so hyper competitive. I don't know that any given quick service restaurant is going to feel the pain because there are, there are players that come and go in any market within the restaurant industry in a, a year's time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's certainly going to be interesting to watch. Uh, the one thing that was interesting to me that, you know, they just opened the third one in Chicago. First one had a big kitchen in it. The second one was very close, uh, to the first one in Seattle and it didn't have a kitchen because presumably that kitchen was sort of a, a hub for a spoke, uh, set of, of, uh, stores. But this uh, first one in Chicago does in fact have a kitchen. And so, you know, when you're, when you think about it, like that, a lot of the traditional convenience stores may have some food, but they don't actually have fresh food they're preparing on site. And uh, I think we did hear from one of the Amazon execs that that so far that BMA sandwich is their number one skew, whereas like a convenience store, it would be a beverage or or in the old days, cigarettes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, another category that, that uh, people are certainly speculating Amazon is is on the cusp of disrupting is uh, a pharmacy. And uh, I know they bought PillPack earlier this year. Any any thoughts about uh, Amazon's true aspirations in the pharmacy space and how that might play out? Yeah, I mean, well, this is, it's a, it's a fascinating one because going back to the point about they need to go after really, really huge markets. Um, obviously, healthcare is one of the biggest and one of the fundamental advantages of healthcare is that it's a sector that's actually growing, unlike retail, which um, is growing probably at the rate of inflation. Healthcare um, is growing faster than inflation. And um, to be part of that, probably one of the more scalable aspects of it um, in the, on the prescription drug side versus on the provider side. And by the way, they're actually, you know, there's the whole announcement of Amazon with Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan, which is actually an experiment on the provider side too. Um, but on the, the prescription drug side, um, it makes, it makes a ton of sense. It's an enormous market that's, you know, a hundred billion dollars plus there's inefficiency in that space. And um, if Amazon is able to to help support that um, and to make life easier for for everyone in the ecosystem, whether it's um, a medical provider or whether it is a patient, um, that's that's a that's a transformational thing. Um, so so that makes actually a lot more sense to me because that's that's a market that um, that that is one of those markets that could be meaningful to a company that um, is still $200 billion in revenue. So just to pivot a little bit, when, when retailers ask you what to do about Amazon, what, what kind of, uh, what, what do you advise? I think to give? that um, there's a lot to learn from Amazon. Amazon um, executes, of course, incredibly well. They, um, they're, they have, you know, some, they make, customers so happy with with their fabulous customer experience whether it's shipping or their you know how easy it is to return something or how easy it is to track merchandise or um, you know find whatever it is that that you're looking for um, so so all of that I think is is absolutely worth emulating and you know I always point out like one of our data points says that one of the things that consumers want um, from any website is just visibility into when you, you know kind of when an item is supposed to arrive and you know Amazon's been doing that for years, but yet to this day, most e-commerce sites still don't have it. So when the question is, you know, what should we do about Amazon? My 
first inclination is, you know, just imitate it, <laughs> imitate the best parts of it. Um, because, you know, they've set some pretty good standards and in a great customer experience. Um, so I think that that's, that's, that's one of the things that you can do. Um, there, I, I think that there are, are other opportunities from um, the standpoint of leveraging a lot of the information. I mean, I, I think that Amazon is one of the largest open source product databases out there. And, um, you know, they, they expose a lot of what's actually selling on their site when you dig into categories and subcategories and sub-subcategories. And I don't know that there are a lot of companies that take advantage of that data to see if there are opportunities and trends that um, that could benefit them too. Um, now, aside from from that, I think that some of the the biggest questions that we get um, about Amazon are related to well, how do we how do we engage with them as a as a partner? Um, do we sell on the Amazon marketplace, knowing that um, it is it could be you know a deal with the devil if uh, you, you know we're exposing everything from our margins to um, you, you know our unit velocity, and um, is that is that something that could come back to haunt us um, if they were to choose to to private label or um, or basically take the best aspects of, of, you know, kind of our merchandise, um, you know, versus do we go at it and try to sell something, sell our products direct to consumer or through other channels. Um, and, and that I think is, those are, those are tough existential decisions that, um, you, you know, the, the, the right answer is going to vary from company to company. It's going to depend on everything from your culture to what it is that you actually sell to, you know, what kinds of, uh, you know, barriers to, to, to competition, your brand has, has even set up, if any. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated relationship. I think the easiest answer is, you know, take the best of what they've already established and, and, um, you know, absorb, you know, and embrace it. And, um, you know, on the harder side, it's, uh, you know, kind of how do you, how do you coexist in this, you know, in a world where online it's such a dominant force and, um, it is, uh, it's, it's, it's proven to be, um, a frenemy to, uh, to, to many brands and retailers. Um, you know, I used to work at Toys R Us and, you, you know, kind of a lot of, th- there was a big, huge lawsuit, you know, that's, you know, now more than a decade old that when you go back and read, you know, the, the, um, the, the ultimately what the, the judge wrote about it, you know, so much of, of what happened then when Toys R Us was selling on the Amazon platform still applies today in Amazon's approach toward its partners. Um, so, so this, this notion and this, this concern that they're a front of me is, is absolutely um, a fair one. Yeah. One of the, the fun games to play on Amazon is sort of imagine uh, what category they're going to disrupt next. Do you have any uh, prognostications you care to make about, about uh, what, what the next big move might be? Well, I think that, um, you know, what I've been thinking for a while is um, I think they're going to make another go at uh, mobile phones. Um, we know that their their first attempt at the Fire Phone was was a disaster, um, but that was just, I think, um, you know, wrong item, wrong time, you know, not the right right mix of, um, of value for, for the customer. Um, but the, the space, the mobile phone, you know, space is, is so large and is one of, again, those categories that would be meaningful to a company that's already $200 billion, um, that it, it almost seems that they would be 
foolish not to take the IP that they had developed. And that's their playbook, right? Is like, you know, nothing's a failure. Everything is, um, you know, a learning opportunity that you build on later. I mean, I'm actually more surprised that after all the failures and challenges with grocery, which is such a low margin category, they keep going after that. Whereas phones, which are, you know, when you look at, you know, Apple's numbers, a really high margin category, um, why why they haven't give make why they haven't made another attempt there. Um, I think there are other categories like, you know, potentially, you know, automotive or travel that are also substantial um, that they may tackle in some way, shape or form. Um, but and I'm actually, you know, frankly surprised they haven't already done something in, in the automotive space. But um, but I, I think that hardware makes a lot of sense. And also given so much of the um, the, uh, you know, kind of the credibility they've now built with with Echo um, as a hardware manufacturer. I think that, you know, any attempt at a phone um, this time around will be more positively received. Yeah, I, uh, that certainly is a reasonable guess. I'm hoping it's wrong because <laughs> we, we do these um, uh, forecasts at the beginning of every year, Scott and I, and we're highly competitive. And uh, I think you may have just agreed with one of his his picks in the forecast. So I just, for the sake of me winning, I'm, I'm hoping that doesn't happen, but I certainly. <laughs> Sucharita is truly a genius. <laughs> well, we're just going to link to one another <laughs> on Twitter, Scott. I'm actually going to go back to and, and re-edit that show. And I'm going to add a prediction that Amazon's going to get into the microwave oven business. <laughs> Cause I didn't necessarily see that one coming, but uh, I don't know if you guys caught the news. Amazon announced 14 new uh, Alexa-enabled products today, and and uh, you know there's a microwave oven and a wall clock. Yeah, I, I thought you'd be excited about the microwave. It has a uh, order more popcorn button. I know you've been talking about you love the buttons being integrated, so so that's exciting. So maybe let's pivot uh, off of Amazon for a second. I know uh, we we could certainly talk about them all day. Most other retailers uh, that are desperately trying to compete with Amazon have have a unique attribute. They have these these physical stores that Amazon doesn't have. Um, any any thoughts about the best ways to leverage those those stores in sort of an omni-channel way as a competitive advantage, or or what what are you seeing going on in that that side of the fence? Yeah, it's um, so I one of the pieces at Forrester that I, I just finished up um, d- doing research on is um, retailer led media networks. And it's funny that because Amazon's actually the biggest of retailer led media networks, but um, there are actually a lot of me- media networks that um, that are less well known, but are um successful, growing, profitable, um, and really interesting engines of, um, of profitability for, for retailers. So Best Buy has one, Target has one, Walmart has one. Um, and, you know, kind of even there are other players in retail that are in the commerce space, like Expedia, that have had these media networks as, as well. Um, and the most successful ones are seeing double-digit percents of their sales um, coming from these media networks. And um, they're more profitable than their core retail business. So 
um, so I, I step back and be like, well, okay, so what's the implication there? And um, I think that the takeaway is that retailers have opportunities to take advantage of the assets they have and monetize them in other ways. Um, and for some of these large mass merchants, one of those ways is to see what they have as traffic. Um, you know, they you, the, the the biggest merchants um, have more captive visitors who are engaged for longer periods of time than most media properties out there, whether it's a magazine or, um, you know, a, a TV show or, um, you know, a movie. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly powerful asset that they have that very few have taken advantage of. And some of that's been just historically, um, they never knew how to take advantage of that. And the technology didn't exist to necessarily make it scalable. There may be like a TV that would be mounted in Walmart stores, but um, this was before the cloud and, you know, these things would break down and no one would know. And it may take months before somebody figured out um, that it needed to be fixed. And, you know, there goes, you know, the media that should have been, you know, kind of visible in that particular store. Um, So, so, but things are different now. And, and, um, you know, I think the, these online media networks have proven that there's an ability to get alternative revenue. Um, and I, I, I see this as, as an opportunity um, for other large mass merchants, whether they're, you know, hypermarkets or, um, you know, even drugstores, convenience stores um, that attract broad audiences of people. Um, so, so that's one thing. Um, I think just the, the, overall mix of how um, retailers look at inventory, the idea of, you know, stores within stores and marketplaces within stores, you know, being more inventory light, letting the brands um, be more of the stewards of what's in that physical store. I think those, those are, those are definitely things that have to, to, to be different. I mean, and these, all of what I'm describing is more kind of, you know, plays on how do you monetize the store and how do you think about um, the store from in a different financial model, not just, you know, having a lot of inventory and selling it. Um, But ultimately, all of that also needs to be wrapped into a great visual experience. Um, And, you know, when you look at retail, um, especially the big national chains, you know, and, you know, you can even say this about, you know, some of supposedly the most experiential, like mall-based apparel merchants, they really, for the most part, haven't changed that much in, you know, the, the, you know, from when they started to often where they are now. Um, But the sector that I'll look at for, for visual inspiration is the, look at the restaurant industry. I mean, there are so many different restaurants out there that cater to so many different demographics. And, you know, whether it is the highest end foodie culture or whether it is, you know, kind of mass, you know, there's a lot of innovation in, in the restaurant space. And, um, Part of that is due to innovation and, you know, food and um, ingredients and menu items. A lot of it is also in the visual look and um, the inviting nature of the the establishment. And that's part of the reason that the restaurant industry, which is 
for the most part, offline. I mean, there's now online ordering, but you know, it's still an experience where people go to the the the, the venue for the most part. Um, and even in the age of seamless and all of the delivery space, uh, the delivery companies. I mean, it's still the vast majority is 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 still in the the physical store. I mean, that's a space that's grown like thirty or forty times in the last few decades, and um, it's because there has been innovation in the experience. And if retailers applied that same innovation to their businesses, I think that, um, you know, I mean, they would, they would probably bring a lot more people back to the stores. Pretty cool. Speaking of stores, uh, every store I go to now is full of Halloween gear. We're sitting here at September 20th. Uh, Halloween will, will come and go pretty quickly. And then we're looking at holiday 18. Uh, our friend Casey over at Deloitte, they just released their forecast uh, and they're saying online growth 17 to 22%, which is uh, pretty robust. I think last year they said uh, they measured 18% based on the categories and stuff. Where, uh, where Have you guys put out your Forrester report and, and where, where do you think that's going to end up? Yeah, we're in the midst right now of figuring out those numbers. We're not quite as ag- aggressive as Casey's numbers. Our figures are in the low teens. They've been about there for um, the last couple of years, um, and um, you know, part of part of that is. Um, is is you know just kind of the historic trend and uh, so much of it is is about um the the key holidays it's around it's black friday cyber monday um you know the, some of those those bursts in in demand that really generate um you know so much such a high volume of of the sales um but there's one other big unknown um for this particular holiday season and that's what effect the tariffs are going to have on um on retail, I mean the uh, the latest round, um, which takes effect any day now, um, affects a lot of consumer goods and a lot of holiday items like apparel, accessories, footwear, consumer electronics, home goods. Um, so you, you know it, it'll be. It, it, it you know even even though we're we're probably not going to you know revise our forecasts down for that reason um you know we'll see and at the end of december and in january um if there was any impact and if there wasn't you know we can heave a great sigh of relief um for the holiday season but then you know that that just means that we're delaying the inevitable and the impact will be seen in q1 got it so the tariffs are the, are the possible grinch this year that's kind of a bummer yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll see. I mean, the the tariffs um, are ten percent, right, on most of these goods. And when you look at some of the mass merchandise, um, particularly, um, you know, in uh, in home goods or electronics, the the margins aren't even that high for some of those categories. So um, the retailer couldn't even absorb it if they wanted to. Um, so you know, you absolutely will see some of those. Um, eventually show up in in what consumers have to pay. Cool. This actually brings up a topic that, that kind of we hit on the show sometimes. You know, we will do these uh, news reports and everyone's reporting. Uh, so like Amazon's uh, Q2 was like 30% growth and Walmart was 40% and Target's, these are all the online numbers. Uh, and then Target was like, you know, 30%. Uh, but then e-commerce is growing 15%. Even even like Shopify's GMV kind of an aggregate is growing at like 20 or 30%. So so have you have you thought about this? I, I kind of end up 
there's, there's some people in the industry that kind of say they think the number, the 15% is kind of off because it's baselined to this government number and it's a survey and Comscore baselines off of that. Um, it, you know, the, the thing, the question I, I, I ask myself is if the biggest slices of the wedge of the pie are growing twice of 15%, then the, the ones we're not talking about have to be, something has to be losing tremendous share free commerce to only be growing 15%. What, what are we missing there? Sears, JCPenney. <laughs> uh, okay. um, yeah, I, I, you know, there, I think that um, there's, um, you know, there's that psychological bias called survivorship bias that, um, that we hear about, which is that, um, you, you know, we, we talk about the success cases and the success cases talk about themselves. And um, what you end up with is, um, you, you know, kind of, um, a, a, you know, kind of an understanding or seemingly um, an understanding that the, that that everyone's doing well. Um, but when and, and I do see a lot of the, the numbers from specific retailers because we they you know, they fill out our surveys and uh, and not everyone is is doing that well. I mean, there are there there are absolutely, you know, kind of some of these these um, the big some of the big box stores this past you know, for the last couple of quarters have been doing fairly well, but, um, but a lot of the small ones are not. And, you know, there are, um, a number of companies that, that are, that are dying. Um, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of retailers in the big box space, um, you know, I mean, um, Toys R Us's numbers in Q1 weren't great. Um, Staples, you know, Office Depot, you know, there's so many companies that, um, that are included, um, in, in these figures that, um, you don't you don't always think about because they're not really publicizing their their stats, um, but that's that I think is an important piece to keep in mind. There's also, and I think the the other prevailing thesis has been um, in in e-commerce, the big have been getting bigger, um, which is ironic because e-commerce was supposed to be an equalizer, right? It was supposed to be um, you know zero barriers to entry and and anybody can you know can can come in. Um, but, you know, what you are seeing is, you know, you're seeing companies like, uh, like, like, you know, Amazon gaining more share, Walmart gaining more share, gaining disproportionate share to the growth of the industry. And, um, that, you know, and we definitely know that it's harder to attract customers. It's harder to, you know, kind of gain mind share on the internet these days. And, um, you know, that could be part of, part of the issue too, is that there are, there are 800,000 e-commerce merchants out there in the United States. Um, so, you know, Many of them are, are are not pacing double digit growth, and I think that's that's you know likely where um, the figures um, that we see are coming from. Yeah, I certainly will buy that the survivorship bias like sort uh, partly affects how we do this. I, I do still think though there's some goofiness in how the numbers are collected and reported by the the uh, census department, and I like there's actually some tangible examples. They, they report, uh, you can get the data by SIC code. And, you know, for example, if you take the SIC code that Walmart's in and you look at e-commerce sales in that SIC code, the total sales, e-commerce sales for that SIC code are way lower than Walmart's e-commerce sales. So there's, something's getting miscoded or like it's, you know, sales are getting attributed in a different bucket or, you know, and again, they're, in many cases, these are self-reported numbers. So the retailers just have to make a mistake in order for the data to be wrong. So I, it, potentially it's a, uh, a accumulation of, of uh, some of these weird data collections in this new industry and uh, 
some of the, you know, survivorship bias that you're, you're highlighting. That's a fair point, Jason. I mean, I think that um, the truth is, um, and this is, this is the, the dirty secret of, of forecasting, is that um, there's no, there, you know, no one knows what the right answer is because there's, nobody has every data point. Um, and, uh, you know, as a, as a result of that, um, you know, forecasts, um, you know, no matter who puts them out are a combination of a little, you know, you know, a little bit of art and science. Um, so, you know, there's the data points that you do know, and, you know, different types of data points that you can gather. Some can be consumer side data points, some could be, you know, retailer data points. And, you know, there are always questions around how accurately, um, or how truthfully, um, you know, companies and people may be answering, you, you know, some, some of these reported numbers. Um, and there are even very few, even when you're talking about the census, um, it's not getting figures from, from you know, the IRS. It's getting, again, it's getting figures from a survey. Um, you know, the census definitely has, um, you know, the ability to, you know, it has the government behind it. So, you know, there's presumably a little bit, um, you know, of a sense of responsibility that people have to reporting numbers truthfully. Um, but, but even they aren't going to get every single data point. So there's, there's absolutely extrapolation. And within that extrapolation, um, there is a lot of, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, speculating and, um, and that's where the art comes in. And we're not going to solve that, uh, on the podcast, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, I do want to pivot an annoyance I have, and I'm just curious, you, you have some sort of analogous conversations with clients, I'm sure. I get asked a lot about these trends that in my mind are simultaneously like overhyped buzzwords and really important trends. Um, so I, I got to talk about one of those at shop.org, AI, like, you know, I, I sort of, uh, my, my POV was that it's dramatically overhyped and a lot of people, you know, are, are trying to implement AI just to say they implemented AI. Um, but in the long run, it's going to have these really profound effects on, on our industry and be hugely disruptive. Uh, the one of those trends that comes up the most in my world is personalization. And so I'm, I'm curious if you have a, a point of view about personalization, like are, is anybody doing it well or are we doing enough of it? Are we doing too much of it? What's your, What's your thought there? Ah, uh, yes, yes. It's, uh, yeah, incredibly high, probably one of the most frequently asked questions that that we get. Um, I mean, my perspective, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts too, because um, I know that you, you'll have a, a point of view on it, um, is that I don't know that people know even what it means. Um, I think that a lot of people still think that personalization means recommendation engines. Um, there are other people who think that personalization means getting as much data as you can collect, but then they don't have any plan for how they're going to use um, the data that they collect. Um, you know, I mean, some of the the best examples when I think at, you know, kind of the heart of it, what's great personalization is, you know, when a sales associate or somebody that you've had a business interaction with or some commerce interaction with just sends a thank you note, um, you know, or they do something special for you. Um, you know, that's a, a great example of, of, you know, kind of personalizing an experience that's incredibly welcome. But that type of personalization doesn't get considered in, you know, the discussions that, um, that retailers are having about personalization. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, there's, it's, it, you know, personalization, data gathering, 
you know, big data, you know, your chief analytics officer, I think all of these terms get, get commingled and, um, it, you know, there is not even a great, um, you know, there's not even, I, I don't, I haven't seen any great examples of companies that have, um, have, have, have truly, you know, kind of taken personalization and created some unique strategy and, um, have made, you know, billions and billions of dollars, um, from it. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm mistaken. Have you? No, I'm desperately looking for that example because we, we get asked for it all the time. And I, I'm sort of, of a, a like mind with you. Like I'm, I'm fond of reminding people personalization isn't an outcome. It's a tactic, right? And so, you know, I, I get annoyed when people say the goal is to have personalization because like your goal shouldn't be to use a tactic. Your goal should be to achieve some, some outcome. Exactly. Because then you're just checking the box, right? I mean, you're not really, you know, kind of, you're not doing anything for your business that's, that's meaningful or for your customers. Yeah. Like, so I would argue most personal, when people say personalization, what they really, the outcome they're hoping to achieve is relevancy, right? Like is to have a more relevant experience that therefore um, connects better with the shopper and in the case of commerce converts better. And like, you know, I can't think of any front end experiences that are like, fabulously personalized to therefore be more relevant for the shopper. Um, I, I would argue like a, maybe like a stitch fix is a good example of personalization in the custom assortment they offer. Each customer is pretty personalized to them. Um, but not so much on the on the front end shopping experience. Right, right, right. And I think that, you know, sometimes some companies may get carried away with it. You know, this idea of relevancy, um, you know, it doesn't matter as much if you have a small or limited product catalog. Um, you know, it's like then you're over-personalizing. You know, you just want people to see everything in your, you know, 50 product catalog, you know, um, and it doesn't make sense to necessarily, you know, go more granular than, than that. Um, you know, it makes a ton of sense if you have a catalog with, you know, 5 million products. Um, but I, I think that, you know, that that's part of the, the challenge too. Um, and even within, you know, a small product catalog can get very nuanced if, you know, if it's a B2B purchase or if it's a very complicated purchase, but, um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's, there's often this, this sense that, you know, personalization is some silver bullet and, um, you know, it's not. Yeah. And I a hundred percent agree. Like, you know, sometimes you don't need personalization. If, if your product is super relevant to a huge audience, you have a great product and you can make the same offer to all of them. And I, I would argue that that's Apple, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you can take the best personalized e-commerce experience in the world, then I'll take Apple and I'll, I'll probably retire before you will. <laughs> exactly. And I think also, you, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, maybe some of the holy grail is is loyalty. Like, how do we get, you know, the outcome being, you know, this or this belief that somehow personalization is tied to loyalty or tied to more loyalty. And, um, and I think that's where some, you know, there's a little bit of, um, you know, kind of a, a fallacy because, um, you know, when you think of the the best loyalty programs out there, it's not necessarily about personalization. It's just that they give you free stuff or they, um, you know, they just, they just have amazing prices or perks. Cool. So we, we've spent a lot of time kind of in the, in the present, uh, maybe stretching out to holiday, but let, let's kind of go to three to five and maybe 10 years out. What are, what are some of the things that are on your radar that, that you think retailers and brands should be thinking about? We, you know, on our show, we've talked about everything from drones to 3D printing to AR, VR. 
what what are some of the things that get you excited about the future of online retail? Hmm. I think that um, within retail, the um, the biggest changes are going to be in disrupting the orthodoxies of retail. And what I mean by that is that retail is fundamentally constrained by um, a few things that that they've always done. You know, they've always owned inventory. They've always, um, you know, hired store associates to do certain tasks. And they don't even share those store associates with other stores in their chain. Um, they, you know, kind of, um, they have real estate that they have bought these, you know, 20, 30 you know, 50 year long leases that they're, they're stuck with. And when I say the orthodoxies change, I think all of that changes in the future. So um, it may not be, you know, and, and in some cases, technology will, um, will potentially empower and change aspects of that. Like for instance, with labor force um, differences, um, you, you know, most retailers now, um, you know, will have their, their store associates and they, they, you know, put them on their shifts and they come in and those store associates only work with um, that particular store. But there are, are companies out there, there are companies like ShiftGig, for instance, that actually have a marketplace of, um, of you know, kind of basically store workers. And as a store, you can tap into that marketplace based on who's available, who's worked at your store before, you know, who has good ratings from their managers and who's, you know, potentially trained to unload a truck or who knows how to work the returns desk um, or whatever the task may be that you need. And um, that kind of nimbleness, I think, is, is what will transform retail in the future. Um, it's really about rethinking how are things done now and are there ways to change that dysfunction in the future for for the better in the future i do uh agree i think that that is a a a very interesting sort of evolution and you know how can we leverage that that in-store labor force across a bigger pool of customers with telepresences and and uh all of those sorts of things as well right Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No question. I think that, you know, I mean, we've spent so much time in the last year talking about omni-channel, but for the most part, it's really still only in the realm of fulfillment issues. And, you know, I mean, there's omni-channel merchandising, omni-channel customer service, you know, there's so many different places where the cross-channel presence, exactly like what you described. I mean, why can't I FaceTime, you know, somebody who knows everything about, you know, Sony TVs when I want to purchase a Sony TV. Like, you know, I mean, that's, that just seems like that's a logical thing to do. For sure. And I, I hope we do see that in the, in the near future. I think there actually may have even been a few vendors in that space in the innovation center at shop.org this year. So hopefully uh, some of those guys will make it, but that's going to be a great place to leave it because it has happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Uh, but if you have a burning question uh, that we didn't answer on today's show or you have a comment, we'd encourage you to jump on a Facebook and uh, continue the conversation there. As always, if you enjoyed the show, the way you can uh, repay us is to jump onto iTunes and give us that five-star review. Uh, it really helps us to continue to build our audience. Sutrita, we really appreciate you coming on here this evening. And uh, sorry, it took 150 episodes for us to line up everything, but let's let's have you back on in less than uh, before our uh, 
episode one, 300. Um, uh, I, you're very active online. Where do you generally direct people if they want to see your, your thoughts about what's going on out there? Um, I, I am a big Twitter fan. So um, I would say Twitter. Yes. My uh, Twitter handle is um, S Mulpuru, which is, um, which is the, the, the name before I started using my married name. It's S M U L P U R U. Awesome. We will put that in the show notes. Uh, Sutrita, as always, it's been a true pleasure. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jason and Scott. And uh, until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.